need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, one of the great purveyors of riddles of my life. It's Andy Greenwald! I thought you said riddling. No, I mean... <laughs> you want to cop, cop these pills? Let's go. What's up, man? Monday, uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about Lovecraft Country. Andy's got an interview in the back half of this one. Andy, tell him who you're talking to. It's a big time, big time get for you. We're talking to an OG friend of the pod, one of my literary heroes, one of Chris's literary heroes, the great George Pelicanos. He's been on the podcast a bunch of times for his wonderful uh, novels that he's written, for his work with David Simon on shows like The Wire and The Deuce. And he came on today to talk about a film uh, that he a film. It, it's basically an anthology. Whoa, I don't even know how to describe it. It's a film, one mm-hmm. movie called DC Noir that is itself an anthology of crime stories set in Pelicanos's home district, the District of Columbia. All four stories written by George, one directed by George, one directed by his son, Nick, another directed by the great uh, actor from The Wire and the Deuce, Benga Akinabe. It's a really cool project for people who are interested in all the things that I mentioned, a really great distillation of what makes George so unique and great and special. And it's a pleasure to talk to him. Awesome. So we got George, but you know, we had to do it to him. I think, oh, so I should man- mention a little bit of house cleaning. This week, yeah. we'll probably have a lot of thematic overlap between the two episodes because today we're going to talk a little bit about the Batman trailer and uh, the Snyder Cut trailer. And just, it's actually, uh, Chris, just sorry to nitpick. It's actually the, the Batman trailer. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I'm already, I'm like, give me the Matt Reeves cut. Like yes. I'm, I'm, I'm on 2026 when I'm still like signing change.org petitions to get the real Batman, the real the Batman. Uh, Chris, Andy if that's and the only little... change.org petition you have to sign that year, <laughs> then we're doing fine. Can't fucking wait, man. <laughs> so we're going to be doing a little bit of that. Uh, we have Lovecraft. And then I think on Thursday, we're going to be doing a crossover episode with the big picture. So the uh, me and Andy and Amanda and Sean with the big picture and I think we're going to be talking a lot about the fluid nature of movies on TV, TV and the movies, the mid-movie idea that Andy had. I'm bringing them my idea, much like my childhood cat once brought a ripped-to-shreds dead mouse and dropped it at the foot of uh, <laughs> so we're gonna, my bed. We're going to be doing that on Thursday. you know. But today, we wanted to talk a little bit about, about these trailers. Before we get into it, because people love digressions, I just want to say... Love doing this podcast, <laughs> and uh, especially during this time, especially this summer. And I just have had two things I just wanted to point out to people um, to let them know just why I'm loving it so much. One is, I know people who didn't take part in this probably want us to be done with it, but we did finish our Summer of Dove last week, our four-part exploration of the Lonesome Dove, the book, and the miniseries. And it was some of the most fun that I've had, that we've had, I think, podcasting. We love doing it. And if you were on the fence or you have yet to even dig into either of those things, pretty soon we're going to release a compilation episode with all four parts and uh, you can then listen to it at your leisure. So we're really proud and excited about that. But also, we talked about this on Thursday, Chris, how I, I made a, a return appearance to the rewatchables yeah. uh, for a very special unwatchable episode about a formative movie in our life, um, Pump Up the Volume. And the thing I wanted to just point out to people is that Chris, you are in phenomenal shape. Everyone knows that when they get, catch a glimpse on Zoom, like like yeah. your body's a temple. But I'm what like I mean to- is Tony Goldwyn in Lovecraft, where it's just, it looks it looks old up here, and then it's just like straight 
LeBron down here. Yeah. <laughs> the conditioning is what's off the charts because when I did this podcast, I forgot that an episode of the rewatchables tends to be longer than the movie itself. It can be. And yes. I was winded. You know, I needed a little, I needed more than my usual, you know, Obama style seven almonds after I finished that. <laughs> and the thing that I think people don't realize is that when they hear you, you're cracking wise, you're doing your segues on this podcast you've been up getting after it. Like you've already done a rewatchables today. And so I just want to, in the spirit of our friendship and the spirit of uh, Woodrow Call and Gus McRae, just salute you yeah. for putting in the work. I already did the morning shift at Smart Tech. We did 40-Year-Old it's... Virgin. When's the last time you've seen 40-Year-Old Virgin? Um, Probably before I was 40 years old. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. I mean, it's been a minute for me too, but it was very, it's still very funny. That movie made me laugh a lot. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so thank you for your commitment to the podcast trenches. And now we can get back into what we do best, which is talking about things that don't exist yet in the form of trailers. Greenwald, do you think the Batman's going to have some lulls? I'd say no. You yeah, know, it so didn't, I, I didn't get that same kind of like Apatow, like one for you, five for me vibe. Like I didn't get a sense that Adam McKay was just off camera shouting Ron Burgundy lines to Paul Dano. You know, it just didn't have that loose feel that I was expecting from the trailer. I'm so into this movie. Uh, Not only does it look really good and I'm definitely excited to see it. And it seems as though we're going to get a finally like a year two Batman, which is not, you know, not rooted in. We have to go through Bruce Wayne's origin story in any way. Like it does seem to Mm. be you, well, you don't, oh, so you don't you, think Thomas Wayne's getting God in this movie? Maybe, maybe in like a quick moment. But I feel like when we meet Robert Pattinson's Batman, he will be Batmaning. But, <laughs> do you think there's like a pretty good, pretty good, like kind of off week medium episode of Saturday Night Live sketch about the actor who gets the part but has no knowledge of the mythos? Yeah, it's just like Tom, Thomas Wayne. That's my Wayne. dad That's the is same dead. <laughs> No, no, no. Gets the part of Thomas Wayne. Oh, yeah. It's just like, I'm going to eat off this movie forever. No, I I definitely think it's like, it's basically like in Lovecraft where it's like the Order of the Ancient Dawn, but instead it's the Order of the Thomas Waynes. (laughs) And it's all together. It's like Tony Goldwyn and Bruce Davidson and all the like, like, kind of like 59. But and and I get to play Batman's dad for eight minutes. (laughs) Linus Roach, I think, played it. Anyway, sorry. So I'm cutting you off. You're all in. Tell us why. Uh, well, I'm all in because this movie seems like a, a the great temple of director bullshit that has ever been built. You know, so far, <laughs> Matt Reeves has invoked Chinatown and Taxi yeah. Driver and the French Connection, and it's if you're gonna ma- if you're gonna put me in this position where I haven't left my house significantly in months and months and months, and movies are perpetually being delayed, and even Tenet, which is getting reviewed and seen, but not seen, and we're, I, who knows when we're going to be able to see it. If this is all just going to be in theory anyway, right? by all means, just, just dump all your Criterion collection on top of my head. And so around this trailer is also all this conversation about how this is going to be the hard-hitting, noir, detective Batman. Ugh. I'm all here for it. Keep dropping hints. Keep telling me all about how uh, this is the Jake Giddis Batman. I'm I'm loving it, and honestly, I think it looks pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, I'm trying. I'm not trying to be I, weird. Like I, I want to be a little bit more skeptical and cynical about yeah. this. And I, and it, there's a huge, huge question mark at whether or not Pattison has this level to him and whether he has this range. But Jesus, this looks pretty good. I am struggling as I have to 
wrestle with my own legacy of bullshit here. Because, you know, one of the things that I like to say the most on this podcast, and we even said it, I think, the other day when we were talking about uh, J.C. Chandor's uh, cash grab, right? Yeah. Yeah. Which is... Craven the Hunter. With Craven the Hunter for Sony, which is, at a certain point, we have to kind of accept that to be a director of a certain status and level and ambition, you probably have to get your feet dirty. If you want to tell a noir detective story in 20, I want to say 21, let's hope. Yeah. Um, The question marks in there was good at the end of the trailer. Probably have to make it about Batman, right? Mm -hmm. So I argue that and I say that and I kind of believe it in abstract and in theory. I was gritting my teeth a little bit through the trailer for this because my desire ultimately I think I'm I'm mostly in because my desire to see a Matt Reeves movie is strong I think he's really a talented guy those like those Planet of the Apes movies shouldn't have been good and they were good you know like yeah. that's kind of it, it seems simple but that's a pretty good way to judge modern blockbuster directors if they can just produce on that level and surprise you the cast is so sick I mean this is an insane cast. Yeah. And sometimes that's really all it takes. Like, especially in a world where I, no, no one can go to the movies. That's not just my thing anymore. Um, if you told me there was a movie with Pattinson, Dano, Farrell, uh, Kravitz. Jeffrey Wright. Jeffrey Wright. Andy Serkis. Yeah, yeah. I'll go see that movie. Yeah. So that ultimately wins. But it definitely was a little bit of a struggle for your boy young good faith over here because God, I don't give a shit about gritty Batman anymore. I, you, don't I, like Bo- that, you don't like Bobby Bad Hands? <laughs> that shit has been done to death. And the idea that making it even darker and there was a lot of, lot of, lot of internet chatter like, oh snap, does Batman kill people now? Cool. I'm going to assume because Matt Reeves, I think, has a firmer grasp on what, like on some core element of these characters than say Zack Snyder does. Mm. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. Mm-hmm. I hope Batman doesn't kill people. Like that stuff kind of matters to me still. It does. And so if this is not just another like, oh, you know what would be better is if we took everything more seriously and made it less humorous. If if it was, if that's just the trailer and the movie itself is the Dark Knight detective mm-hmm. in a dark city, Okay. Okay. But honestly, I I I almost would this look, it almost made me miss the the bat nipples and Schumacher because like at least grab the wheel of the Batmobile and turn it into a different lane. That's what is interesting name. about Batman to you? In 2020? As a character. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> nothing. <laughs> I mean, but truly nothing. Look, so that's why I'm the I'm but the wrong messenger for this because we're, to you. Yeah. Of course. Batman. Yeah. But, well, but but the, but the interesting thing is here, right? It's just that we've seen it. Like they've done it. And I don't know if every generation deserves a new Batman. What's interesting is this sort of broken person who is driven to become a detective and a vigilante uh because of what happened to Tom and Martha, right? Like that's that it's kind of a pure idea and it's interesting and the idea of this detective at night and blah, blah, blah. That's all cool. It's just that maybe we've done it. You know what I mean? Like unlike the uh, Marvel heroes, which I do think work, you can tell their individual stories, but then team-ups are cool because mm-hmm. they're kind of more open-ended. 
the the DC characters are so totemic that why would Superman hang out with other people? Why would Batman hang out with other people? You know what I mean? Like tell that person's story. I just the, look. The, I'm not saying anything. I'm not trying to just hate on it because I'm I'm personally sick of it. I'm sure this is something that Matt Reeves and everyone involved in the DCU brain trust has considered. Right? Like, why do we need to do this again? Other than we're going to make a billion dollars if we do it right. But that's where I'm at. I think that this, I've come to really appreciate the free jazz way that they're doing this at DC, <laughs> where they're just like, there can be the Todd Phillips Joker verse, or not even the Joker verse, but like, you can just make these movies if you have good ideas for them, and maybe you can make sequels or whatever. But that there will be Ben Affleck's Batman in a resurrected version of Justice League, and possibly also in the Flash movie that there will be Robert Pattinson's Batman in the Matt Reeves movie, and that there could even be like a Batman in the Joker movie at some point that, that Todd Phillips like redoes. And it just kind of is like what people want right now is the, a little bit more instant gratification rather than nine films leading up to a 10th whopper, you know, or, yeah, I, or I, three I, films it, that come to, that bring a conclusion to a trilogy that they're just like, give me, give me the hit, man. I'm not into comic book movies because I'm patient. Here, here's what I would say. I, I hear that. And here's the other thing. I do want purely from a, you asked me what interests me about Batman. If I'm being honest about that, I definitely do want this movie to both be good and to succeed because what would be cool to me, if you have this, as I said, like totemic character would be a version of, blockbuster movie making where someone who's talented and has a like a ever the way everyone talks again the way everyone talks about this it's not like this is robert town's chinatown script but people were pretty hype on matt reeves's version of the story mm-hmm. right and that it must be a pretty good script um and if it works if they treated the character in the cinematic universe the way they have treated it recently in the comic book universe which is to say this is an elite character and elite writers will get their turn and the way that has played out is Grant Morrison, whom I adore, took over Batman for a bunch of years and pushed him in all sorts of very Grant Morrison crazy directions where Batman now has a son and then he has a company. And like, it's just this huge world spanning uh, character redefining thing. And then he was done. And then Scott Snyder took over. And now Tom King, who's a brilliant comic book writer, mm-hmm. is doing his version of it, right? So if we could get that cinematic, and now John Ridley um, is, is taking over. So if there was a version of that in the movies, that would be great. And maybe you need the Matt Reeves. It's kind of familiar. There's a little bit of Nolan here. You know, there's a little bit of Joker version to then hand it to someone who might be radical to get to the Olivia Wilde version or whomever we're going to anoint. Mm-hmm. Then let's go. Let's do that. That would be cool. I'm pretty fired up for it. And I also think that this movie trailer made me miss movies. It made me miss going to the movies. It made me miss yeah. anticipating a film and going to see it on Friday night or Thursday night and talking with my friends about it that weekend. And, you know, that, that my version of that is going to see it at 10 a.m. on a Monday alone <laughs> and then immediately <laughs> recording a podcast with you about it. I miss That's that. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about Justice League. To wait, the ex- wait, wait, wait. Let's stay positive. Let's talk about the Wonder Woman 1984 trailer that also dropped at this DC Fandome event. Yeah. I was living in the Fandome this weekend. <laughs> is, that, is that how you describe yourself? Just a, a lot of cross currents of air coming across. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wonder Woman 1984. And this trailer was uh, decidedly less 84 than the sort of teaser that they had released before, which was much yes. more like kind of Stranger Things. We're in the mall. Jane Fonda workout videos. Nostalgia. And maybe since... I mean, how many? I, th- this film has been 
unfortunately delayed i think the most by like the by, by the pandemic i think yeah this movie was supposed to be out by now and the reason i know this is not because look i'm not some hollywood elite like pouring over the trades i'm out in the trenches i go to diners with people not anymore but the reason i know is because a bag of cool ranch doritos i bought a month and a half ago had a big ad for Wonder Woman 1984 on it. So these were, <laughs> so that's how I learned about movies release dates. And I know right. we've blown past it, but I didn't blow past those delicious corn snacks. No free ads, but <laughs> mm, hit the spot. But this one looks a little bit more like a traditional superhero action movie. Well, they saved it. They saved, they saved the 80 stuff for the end. Yeah. Little, little laugh lines at the end. So here's how I want to frame this. Because maybe this is just me being me. Maybe this is me being cranky maybe this is post-pandemic me but watching post, these two post. movies back to back well like i've been affected by it um watching these two trailers back to back i think i had a lot more time for the wonder woman one yeah. because the no one like i haven't seen it yet anyway patty jenkins has not gone on twitter to be like wonder woman 1984 is our version of working girl and Jonathan Demme something wild and nine to five. You know what I mean? Like he's not claiming, she's not claiming the mantle of great films the way it's become de rigueur for DC filmmakers Yeah, the director to say. bullshit move, yeah. It's, it's not that. It's basically saying, you know those things that were really pretty good in the hit film Wonder Woman? Well, we're <laughs> going to do them again and it'll be fine. And honestly, that hit me as a little bit more honest trailers than the Batman being like, coming to blow your mind and blow out the fucking Oscar stage. You know what I mean? It's just like, that's where I'm at right now, where I was like, I, I, I am more attuned to the simplistic, streamlined purity of Kristen Wiig's CGI jumping as a Cuban cheetah than I am, you know, the great Colin Farrell in a fat suit with night sweats being like, I'm coming for you in the sequel, Bruce Wayne. <laughs> I think... Uh... Yeah, it it looks it looks a lot more I think that the 1984 trailer that I first saw seemed I, I know that all these movies are re relatively convoluted but I was like wait what was was really my like reaction to the first one whereas this one it seems like a lot more clean lines very understandable so you can tell, totally tell where it's going and yeah you know I mean like these movies do not have to play by the same rules as like any other you know, you know what to do. Chris Pine can come back. You know what I mean? Just like, sure. Yeah. That was always like a thing with like those Captain America movies where I was just like, like just bring Haley Atwell back. She's it's delightful. Fine. Yeah. And it's so fine. Well, th this movie, I mean, our, our biases are showing, but like Wonder Woman was the only, has been the only DC movie that hit like a Marvel movie did in mm. the sense that it was just unequivocally adored by fans, made a ton of money and also had that exact same critical vibe where, you know, even the New York Times, like, hmm, well, I suppose I enjoyed part of it. You know, like, it, it was fine. It, it, yes. it, it crossed over in that way, but it also carried with it a sense of fun and escapism, carried mostly by the charisma of the lead performance. And so there, now, there wasn't too much overthinking of this Do you think that there will be, it will be like a little like Something Wild? No, see, look at you. That's what, we all wish that. Look, if I wouldn't care about director bullshit if I didn't fall for director bullshit. He, like, the entire the, point of this is that this is my drunk. The only thing that is something wild in this movie 
is Kristen Wiig's performance <laughs> as a jungle cat or something. That was know. a very good imitation of a 1980s movie critic who's on like Thanks. for eight seconds at the end of the local news. It's like, Wonder Woman, you'll be wondering how you did without this movie for so long. <laughs> uh, should we talk a little bit about the four-hour Justice League to Snyder cut? Did your dad ever do local TV to talk about his movie reviews? Like, did he I ever go on like, Good Morning have. Philadelphia or whatever? Y yeah, like, I e think he Evening Magazine with Nancy Glass. Remember that? I feel like he did, but not in, like, a major part of his career. He was not, like, a... I don't think, like, he and Kerry Rookie and a bunch of people, like, did, did like, any kind of Evening Magazine thing. I just kind of wish, like, Channel 29, like, in between weather and traffic had your yeah. dad to explain why Wings of the Dove is a masterpiece. Where, where you wish Harry Callis would throw to my dad for the sixth <laughs> inning movie, movie review during the 1980s. Oh, uh, so yeah, let's, you, I can tell you just do not want to do Snyder with me, man. <laughs> let's do it. Let's, if you, um, said the, you, said, you said the two words that are like the bat signal for this conversation. You said director and you said bullshit. So let's go. So we're about like, this is one of the all time like, okay, I'm calling your, I'm calling your bluff. Yeah. This That's is what my I take love as about well. this. Yes. Is I actually personally could not give less of a shit whether this movie is like exists or not. But the fact that like so many of these guys, like just like reply guys, were like, we need this thing that may or may not even exist. You better release it. You better free my man Zach to put out the four hour version of this orgy of darkness that we think we want. And now yeah. you are going to get it. And now yeah. you're going to get the four fucking hour version, man. Like you could do so much with your life, but you're going to watch Justice League, this four hour version. And I'm right here for you, man. I'm going to watch it. I'm going to be here right with you guys. I'll be your support system. I just can't wait to find out like whether or not he has the goods at all. If there's one thing the last 15 years This is years what my life has come to. Like this is what I'm interested in. You could borrow one of my kids. Like, if you want to. That would be fine, too. For the last 15 years, if there's one thing that we've learned is that Zack Snyder, artistically, I'm not, this is, I don't even mean this is a critical statement, has not learned to leave well enough alone, right? And so I just want to just, just purely from like a Q rating, PR strategy, optics, retire a legend. Not professionally, but this part of your life. Mm -hmm. Like, there is no better alternative for someone who spent years making something that was as atrociously received as the film Justice League was, then for it, the, the rumor to spread that no, actually, it's a masterpiece, but other people screwed it up. That is best case scenario. What you do when that happens is you tease and you wink and you soak up the adulation for something that doesn't exist. And then you walk away and move on. You don't actually respond to the bluff. Yeah. Right, you don't do it because now you're going to make a four-hour miniseries about something that the majority of the world hated, and I can't imagine a good outcome here that's better than the legend. Like, look, I'm going to make this comparison now. This may be the last moment when we can laugh about this, if we can laugh about it at all. But like, wasn't QAnon more fun when you were just speculating about what was going on in the basement of a pizza parlor, and then the people who owned the pizza parlor were like, "Yeah, now you got to be just, a fucking we just congressman." Make, we, now yeah, you have to like be in Congress. Now you have to like move to Washington. Not just that, but the people who own the pizza parlor were like, we just make pizza. Come see. Like then there's no more, there's no more fun speculation. Enjoy the mystery. Justice some, League fans slash incels, enjoy the mystery. There's Let something about Justice League that 
is like our nostalgia factory collapsing on itself. I was yeah. thinking about this because uh, like on Thursday or Friday, I saw a bunch of tweets. I, I guess this is, I mean, I, I actually like Travis Scott, but I, I did not know that Days Before Rodeo was something where we needed to mark its sixth year anniversary. <laughs> and apparently it is. It was like, you know, like, and I, I get it. Like the there are random records out there and you might just be like, man, seven years ago, this record dropped. Is, is this era officially rodeo? Like, is it, have we been in rodeo now since <laughs> yes, that was that's right. pre-rodeo? <laughs> yeah. Because I'd, right. I'd like days after rodeo, please. So, but they, there was this like sort of nostalgia factory for this Travis Scott record. And it was a random, I mean, six years did not seem like a super significant anniversary to me, but whatever. And I was thinking about like this, this is Justice League is actually just like the nostalgia factory for Justice League itself, which was mm-hmm. just released a few years ago. You know what I mean? Like, and our need to kind of deify anything that we have actually participated in and revisit it and kind of celebrate it in that way is fascinating. I completely agree with that. And I think the other piece of it is, is that because of the instant gratification culture of the internet um, or instant engagement, not Mm -hmm. always gratification, certainly, we collectively, and I certainly would put myself in this category as well, we're not okay with just being disappointed. You know, it's just not okay. Part of the desire for this to be released or remixed or re-edited is the hope that then it might be good. Because there are people who do deeply care about these characters. And the thought of getting an Avengers-like movie for the characters that they love, because it, you know, there were Marvel people and there were DC people, the thought of that finally happening, it's something that people with legitimate other things going on in their lives have thought about and dreamed on for years and decades. And then it sucked. And so it's very hard to accept that. And, and it, you know, this weekend, I was thinking about it in terms of something else that used to matter to us and maybe you know, it still matters to other people, like Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, my older daughter is watching the, the movies now. The new ones and, or the, all of them? Well, no, she's watching the classics. So she's only, she's seen, she watched Empire Strikes Back. And first of all, it is taking every bit of my own parental patience and everything I've learned from being a parent for this long, not to be like, those are the only movies. <laughs> like, because for her, she's like, which one is Ray in? You know? Right. And then, right. And, and when do I get to meet Luke and Leia's mom? I'd be like, pretend those never happened. But I don't say that. I'm like, oh, okay, well, hopefully you'll have your own opinions. And I will just, daddy will be crying in the corner, clutching his Greedo doll. <laughs> but my point being, they did make the sequels to Star Wars, everyone. They made them. And they were The Force Awakens and they were The Last Jedi and they were Rise of Skywalker. They did it. And other than Last Jedi, they sucked. And that's it, right? Like, we're not getting Han Solo back to, like, sacrifice himself in a different way. We're not getting the Leia send-off that we wanted or whatever. Mm -hmm. That's it, man. They did it. And they were bad. And now we got to move on. And that's tough. And look at the reaction to those movies. It's still based on that, like, I wanted something for years and you did it wrong and I will not accept that it's over. And frankly, maybe it's not because we get a Batman movie every four years. You know, maybe they'll take <laughs> another swing at it. But I think that it's it's just people may ding us for constantly talking about you know trailers or this Snyder thing that doesn't doesn't even exist yet and we haven't even watched. And do people ding us for that? I don't know. I, I'm pre dinging us. I just mean to say it almost doesn't matter what gets put on HBO Max next year. Because it's really the meta conversation about this is on some level, I think, more significant than whatever. Well, it's it also is pretty fascinating to watch 
like a fan driven effort. Yeah. End up like this. And I, 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 you know, as somebody, I may watch, I I want Netflix to bring back the society. I don't know how much time I'm going to spend on making that happen. (laughs) You know what I mean? Kaya and I are devastated, but it's, it's going to be like something that I, I take the L on and move on from. And it's, it's crazy to see what happens when people don't just take the L. Yeah. I think they could apply, we could apply that to more important parts of society. <laughs> you know that great point. That lack of accepting L's, but we'll we'll see. Um, before we get into your interview with George Pelicanos, I want to talk briefly about the second episode of Lovecraft Country, mm-hmm. Whitey's on the Moon. I think that you know we had a conversation uh, about the first episode. I talked with Misha Green. I think we were generally really positive about um, what this show had to offer, and I think that this second episode, to be fair to me, felt like a little bit more like it was a a little bit patchier and like it was stitched together a little bit more, which is something that I think I had been prepared for because Mm -hmm. of the long road this show took to get to air in the first place. So I just felt like there was stuff missing from this episode. Not like, Oh, I would have loved to have seen a moment where this happened. I mean, literally how did that person get from over there to over there (laughs) moments, Mm -hmm. which at the, clip at which this show moves which it uses its full 60 but is jamming stuff in there you can sometimes overlook you can sometimes be like i got it i understand and i think you were like how come like letty gets in the car with them in the first place and i was just like ah whatever she just gets in the car still don't know yeah this episode had a few more things where i was just like wait what yeah i want to i want to talk about this not necessarily critically, but just from the perspective of what often happens with TV seasons and the way that they're made now. And I should preface this by saying, I didn't even speak to Misha last week. I don't know her at all. I don't know anything about what's going on behind the scenes or what went on behind the scenes during the the long gestation between script and pilot and then shooting the series. Um, but from my own experience, watching stuff as a critic and my own experience making something last year, it is a universal truism that second episodes are the hardest. And I don't want to um, basically make any grand pronouncements about anything based on the second episode. The reason second episodes are so hard is when you make, if you've made a pilot, is that separately, I mean, from the from the production, is that basically it's two different restarts. You, see, I mean, mm-hmm. it's two starts. You start the whole thing twice, and a pilot is a sprint that's secretly a marathon. In that you have to basically make an entire movie staff up and produce something in a relatively short amount of time. But it is a longer slog than you realize because it started before you realized you started when you were in development or writing the script. And then the long process afterwards of getting notes from a pod, from a studio, from a network, reshooting perhaps, it goes on and on and on. Making a series of television is a marathon that's actually a sprint. You know, you, you you staff up, you're in a writer's room for a long, long time writing scripts and getting notes, and then you go into pre-production and then production. And when you get to wherever you're shooting, you see the paperwork and you're like, in, in my case, you know, I got there for the first time in April or May, and it's like, you're going to be here till rest, just before October. And yet the demands never slow down. So that's just incredibly challenging and difficult. And often the result of that, because a, a second episode is kind of doing a pilot again, starting over, often second episodes just literally just do the pilot again. Sure. They just make the pilot again, remind you of what the show's going to be, maybe with a little more confidence about where it's going and then hope for the best and then you get a feel for things going forward. In my case, that was almost entirely true because this the first episode of Briar Patch and the second episode were 
you know, basically broken and written by me alone. And then I had the room for the rest of them. All of this is to say they did not make the pilot again. So I have a lot of respect for that. It feels like it could be like episode seven. Yeah. For me, it feels like they made episodes two through seven and put them into one hour long episode. That's an interesting point because I was kind of wondering whether or not in my mind when I ended episode one, Mm-hmm. I was like, the rest of this season will take place at this house. Exactly what I was going to say. Yes. And it seems like they decided, nah, we're going to destroy the house in one episode, which I respect. I mean, you can't have the body of commentary that we have for years on this podcast and then turn around for Lovecraft Country and say, you know what? It's too gonzo. They really went for it too mm-hmm. much. Yeah. Much rather this than a throat-clearing, quiet reshuffling of the deck to set the tone. That said, the intensity and gonzo weirdness, which I respect the hell out of, veered into incoherence at times from my from my taste or my perception in this episode, and I struggled with that. But I, it's hard for me to, to, to draw too many conclusions from it because the episode opened with the Jeffersons, the theme music from the Jeffersons, and... I did something that I didn't do during the 65 minutes of the pilot, which was just like laugh out loud and smile. Like I loved that. I thought that mm-hmm. was bright and hilarious and clever. And that was in the first second of this episode, you know? So they're going for it, yeah. but I, I, I am not entirely sure what they're, what they're going for. Yeah. I just thought that there was a couple of points. The specific one that I'm thinking of is the way that in the first trip from the lodge to the village, it seems like this very cautious, very perilous journey. It's also a sundown town you, you know, because the woman with the dogs is like, you gotta get, you gotta, gotta get home before dark by sundown. It seems like it takes a while to get through the woods, which are also populated by monsters. Their car, I understand they get their car working again, but it, it really is like they go from the lodge and then they're just like, have broken into the prison and have found the secret wall that uh, Montrose is hidden behind, and who and he has obviously escaped by then. I, I don't understand. I didn't understand anything that was happening in that whole run. I didn't know when they left the house, where they were going, how they knew where to go, and how they found Montrose. But he was there in the ground. I didn't like, and and, and I I think I'm fairly savvy at watching things, but I yeah, I mean, I, I, I just it, it moves that. really, really, really fast. So I think that uh, if you drop a Basically, when it's like, if you're going to play at that kind of speed, there needs to be like a baseline level of like understandability, I think. Because otherwise, it just feels like you're almost witnessing an improv game. What if they did this next? And then they're here. And then they're there. Oh, keep going, keep going, keep going. Because we got to get to the part where the whole thing collapses on itself. And I'm fascinated to see episode three, actually. Because I I, want to know whether or not this is a hard reset or whether it is you know somehow the tony goldwyn character and all he's going to get out of his statue or whatever or is this show going to be more like an adventure of the week thing there there are two things obviously there's been a lot of conversation overdue conversation and not enough honestly conversation in this industry and as the and in many industries about diversity in storytelling and i think that from the conversations that i've been having with people one of the main themes is there's kind of two versions of tell of diverse storytelling one that surface and one that's a lot more um holistic one is take a story 
that is written, quote, colorblind and put a person of color in the lead. But everyone else behind the scenes and all the behavior of the character is, quote, unquote, colorblind. Like their their lived experience as a black person in America doesn't really affect the character. And this is sort of like the the 24 reboot, right? Mm -hmm. Where it's just like, we'll just make a younger Kiefer Sutherland, but we're going to put a a black actor in the lead and we'll just take it from there. Everyone who made the show is still the same people for the most part. The other version of that is what is happening here, where we're telling of you know a very wacky at times genre campy story, but not only are the leads black, but they are it's with intention. Mm-hmm. It's coming from black creators and their point of view and their lived experience is central to their experience in this elevated world. It's really hard to do when the world is this elevated. You know, so I, I have a lot of time for the project and I have a lot of admiration for the attempt. There's a piece up on The Ringer today that I enjoyed reading a recap of episode two that really calls out the essential act of gaslighting that the family that 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 Atticus and his uncle George and, and Letty are have to experience in this yeah, house. Lex wrote it. Lex Pryor wrote the piece. Yes. And I admired that perspective. And I think that that's a really worthwhile and interesting line of inquiry for the show. From my own uh, experience watching it, I guess it's all so intense and elevated that I found the the experience in the experiences that Atticus and his family had in Chicago or even in that Midwestern town en route where there weren't also, um, you know, visions of snakes emerging from people's phantom crotches a lot more visceral. Yeah. It's like so many layers are happening now. Yeah, I talked to Misha about that. I, where I, yeah, yeah, exactly. That I feel emotionally unmoored a little bit. And I think being emotionally unmoored, it, that can happen early when when a tone isn't set. But it, it it's something that echoes throughout the episode where at the very end, near near the end, you know, two beloved main characters are gut shot. And so we we experience the trauma of, of Letty bleeding out and dying. Mm-hmm. And Atticus experiences it and Letty seems to experience it too. And then it's wiped away and she's fine. And Uncle George, and so we learn, we're taught in that moment as audience of the show that death doesn't count. There's magic. So death can, you know, like Steve Trevor in Wonder Woman 1984, people can right. come back from, from the dead. And yet, two and a half minutes later, the show suffuses us in the anguish and agony of Uncle George being dead. And I'm like, hmm, okay. But we just learned that he's probably coming back. So it's 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 a tough balance to kind of have it to have it both ways. And when we don't really know what's up, is it is it 1950s America with its you know absolutely true and horrific history of racial violence? But there's also magic, and there's also wizards, and people eat their own liver or serve their own liver at dinner parties. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot. And yeah. the show now seems to be rebooting itself for the third time in as many episodes. And that is a wild place to be. Yeah. It'll be really interesting to see how, whether in three weeks we're like, oh, it found its footing. The show found it's the rhythm it wants to operate at. And and I would say the sheer, I mean, the audacity of the project demands that attention and time. Sure. You know, without question. I honestly, I can't wait until we can have that conversation and look backwards with some hindsight as to what path we've been on because I totally have no idea right now. We'll wrap it up there and get into your interview with George and then reminder that we'll be back on Thursday and we're doing a crossover episode with uh, Sean and Amanda on The Big Picture to talk about the current state of TV and movies and the way in which they mingle. 
Uh, Greenwald, it was great to see you. Great to see you too, man. Uh, great to see you too. Check out this talk with, with our great with the great George Pelicanos, and we'll let's get we'll into talk it. to you all soon. So I'm so excited to be joined now by a longtime friend of the pod, one of my literary heroes, uh, and an all around great guy, George Pelicanos. He's a novelist, screenwriter film and television producer. He's written 21 novels set in and around Washington, D.C. I'm proud to say I think I've read all of them. Um, And you've probably also seen his work uh, as a contributor and writer and producer on The Wire and Treme and The Deuce. Joining us from what I have to imagine must be Washington, D.C. is George Pelicanos. George, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Shane. How you doing, man? I'm doing okay. How are you? How is your family holding up? Um, Everybody's good. I mean, my sons are in production business, too. They work on film crews, so they're not working yet. But thankfully, I've been able to write. I, I got some writing gigs because uh, the studios need uh, intellectual property once they start getting going again. So I've been working, thank goodness, It's because it actually it changed my life to, this year to start working again. I just found that everything got better once I started writing. Again. That's the thing. I mean, that that's what it's like out here in LA too. As I'm sure you know, the one part of the business that can happen is the, is the writing, and and it, it it you know can give people real structure back in their lives when there otherwise isn't one. Yeah. So I'm I'm blessed. I mean, everybody's healthy. That's that's the only thing that I can that I can say about all this is I can't complain. I say I start by saying that, and then I say, well, if you know me, you know I could complain, and I offer people the option. Um, <laughs> they they don't often take me up on it. So I, I want to turn right away to this this film. Congratulations on the film. It's called DC Noir. Uh, it should be available when you're hearing this on online streaming services. You can rent and buy the film. Uh, it is a four-part anthology film. Uh, all the stories are written by you uh, with a host of great performers and directors. And could you just talk a little bit about the history of the project? Because I noticed that the final installment, The Confidential Informant, may have predated the film, right? It was a short that was based on a story you wrote way back in 2005 or six for the DC Noir collection published by Akashic. How did this whole project come together? Uh, well, you're right. I We shot that first and I, I just, I was at a time, I was in between seasons of the deuce and I just wanted to, I wanted to make a little film. So I, I enlisted this um, uh, young man from Baltimore, Stephen Kenigopoulos, because he had made a bunch of shorts that I saw and he, it's pretty good. And I worked with him and I knew his mom from Janice worked on the wire and all these shows with us. So it was, it was a family friend and we made it and it was pretty fun. It was a good experience. And then the producer, the guy, the, the guy that was the onset producer, Cal Crosby came to me and he said, uh, let's keep going. You know, let's make a few more and we'll make, we'll make a feature. And I had all these stories that I knew I could adapt pretty quickly and so um, we enlisted uh, Jenny Grenham from D.C., who helped us raise the money. And we went out and made the film. And we, we shot them all, you know, one after the other. I think we were shooting probably probably three or four days each one, if I remember oh. correctly. So that's really run and gun. Yeah. It's pretty exciting as someone who's read your work for so long to see your work. You know, I think people who even only have a passing familiarity with your books know that 
the I mean, it's in the first line of almost every review is that in your work, you present a vision of a great American city, Washington, D.C., that just isn't the version that the tourists see, isn't the version that people might imagine when they even hear the name. Still, as someone who's never walked Georgia Avenue, like I got to see it and to feel the tone of your books brought to the screen was it was pretty exciting. Um, what was that like for you to have that control and say, well, no, people are going to say the lines this way. This is where they would, this is where they would get the coffee. This is the way the cops would walk. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I think, you know, I'm sort of a control freak, you know, I started out writing novels and where you're sort of God, you know what I mean? You can do whatever you want. And then when I got into TV, I, I deliberately wanted to work myself up to a position, position of showrunner because I wanted to continue to control everything. And um, including, you know, I'm really into the way that what the cars that we use and the costumes and all this stuff. So, and, but we've never shot in DC mm-hmm. and all the shows that you see that are set in DC are not shot in DC for the most part. And so I was really uh, focused on that. We shot 100% in the city. No, we didn't go to Northern Virginia or Maryland or anything like that. We use local crews. We had, um, you know, 60 students from Howard University. We in, we let them be interns on the set. Some of those kids, I call them kids, you know, they're not, they're adults, but they've gotten jobs since then because of their credit on the show. And when we went into the neighborhoods, we used local people as, as extras. We had some of these guys that were security for us. We asked them if they wanted to work and kind of control things for us. And, um, and then I got Brendan Canty from Pugazi to, to score the movie. Oh, that didn't slip past me. That was the most DC thing possible. That <laughs> was respect to that. That was incredible. Yeah. And we had a go, you know, we had Backyard Band, which is the, the, the premier go-go band in DC. They're on camera playing. And also Anwan, who Glover, who leads the band, is an actor in the show. So we, we did everything we can to keep it local and, and real. Anwan, back to his, his villain roots that he played on The Wire. He's, we, we got distracted from him being a sweetheart on The Deuce, and now he's back, he's back up to mischief on this. Yeah, he's pretty good at that. <laughs> um, what was it like for you to, I imagine some of the places that you shop, maybe even I'm thinking you know, the bookstore that we were talking about before we started recording, I imagine these are places that you frequent in your life. What was that like for you coming back to them saying, I'm usually a customer, but now I'm going to have to ask you to rearrange this and display this book and et cetera, et cetera? Well, I think because some of these people knew me as a customer, they were, it was a sort of a um, method to that because I knew that it would be easy to get in there and, and get permission to do it. And the, um, the soul food place and the bookstore and, and all these locations that I like a lot, uh, we, we, they managed to, the coffee store on Rhode Island Avenue, Zeke's Coffee. Mm-hmm. Uh, we uh, finessed all of that. I have no doubt. Uh the idea of having a God complex so you can, you know, and that's why you write novels and and then become a showrunner that, that rings true because not only did you write these stories, you directed the first installment of the, of the film, the lovers. And, and this is of great interest to me, you act in the third installment. Now, those of us who enjoyed your cameo in the last season of the deuce as a bar patron, we thought maybe that it should been scratched, but no, now you're a high flying defense attorney. Is this where we're headed? Is, Is there a one man show coming as well? I just like, I like to, I feel like, why not? You know what I mean? I've only got one, uh, one trip here and, and I might as well try and do everything that, that I want to do, you know? Um, and so, yeah, you'll see me again. That was in my son's movie too. 
that, so, that, that that was the next thing I wanted to bring up. Um, you know, you uh, under understandably, and I, I I respect this a lot. You're you're generally quite uh, quiet about your private life and your family life. So it was kind of exciting to see that the third installment um, is directed by your son uh, Nick. And lear- after I learned that he was a director, I went on his IMDb page and I saw that he's put in years of doing you know, some of the most unglamorous work on sets, both sets that you've worked on and films shot, um, I would appear to be all over the country as a PA and then do it being a second, second assistant director. And, and suddenly that rang true that, that reminded me of a, a, a Pelicano style character, learning a craft, learning a trade, um, the way your, your great heroes often do. Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. He, he worked really hard. Um, like you said, you know, he started out emptying trash cans and it took him, it took him almost 10 years to get into the uh, the DGA, the Directors Guild of America. And they, they make it really tough, but you know, then it's an honor when you're in there. Unlike the WGA, you just write one script and you're in. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I thought, not just because he's my son, but also because he's my son, I, th- I just thought he did a terrific job. It's a really good addition to this. And I was proud of him, not just because of what, you know, how he did technically, but also the way he talked to people on set and treated people. It was, um, it was great. The other, uh, we mentioned the other two directors and then Benga Akinabe was directed the fourth one and people know him as, I guess, Chris Partlow on the wire. He was also Larry Brown on the deuce and he played Tom Robinson on Broadway in, uh, to kill a mockingbird. And this is his, uh, directorial debut. What was it like uh, working with both uh, Benga, who's someone you've become friendly with and worked with for many years, but more probably, more importantly, your son in this capacity where, you know, I, I'm going to harp on it since you said a, a God complex in terms of being having creative control. A director, directors like to rule the roost when they're on set. So were there moments, particularly with your son, where where you thought the music should be playing at this volume and he said, no, no, it's got to be this volume or whatever the, the the particular nit he wanted to pick was? I think he, I mean, I only remember him getting annoyed with me once. Um, we were shooting in an apartment and they, there was like a ton of candles lit. And I said, uh, you know, it looks like they're trying to burn the place down or something stupid like that. And <laughs> I think the look in his face was, I wish you weren't here. Basically. <laughs> I mean, and, and I tried to keep that at, at a minimum with all uh, the directors as I do on TV, because as you well know, there's, you've got to have a level of respect there. Yes, it's your show, but the director, if you're just going to tell, you know, stand over their shoulder and tell them what to do, they get to start feeling like, what am I here for? You know, if I can't be an artist in this space. So I tried to do that on this as I do on the television shows. I mean, that was the thing that, that kind of broke my head open in the best possible way when I had the experience to produce something is the idea that you think of writing as such a solitary act and it is, but then when you get to a set or even in pre-production, you have to unlock the thing that you wrote and, let everyone else come in and play on the playground and you know the the joy that can come for what you expect to be a solitary life to suddenly being surrounded by dedicated professionals and people who have abilities that you could never ever imagine being able to do that spirit is so i mean it's incredible it's also kind of intoxicating and it's what i think a lot of people probably you're you're mentioning your sons miss the most about um production during this awful time well isn't andy isn't that what you really ended up enjoying about it most is yeah, it's working with all these talented people that I consider them to be artists, the crew. And and then in the end, you know, you hold this thing in your hand. Let's say it's a, it's a DVD, you know, even though that's not that prevalent anymore. But 
you have this object and you, and you think, you don't think, well, I did this. You think we did, we did all, we did this together. You know, we made something together and it's something that you carry with you the rest of your life. You know, I, I had spent three years in new Orleans on Treme and I, I will never forget it. And all those people I work with, same thing with the wire in Baltimore. Um, it's a different artistic experience than writing a novel or a short story, which is a very solitary existence. And there are great things about it. But I think if I only did that, I would be, um, I'd be socially retarded, basically. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, because the the skill set required to sit alone in a room and dream up everything and control it is very specific. And it's not at all the same skill set required to be on set and, and juggle egos and passions and enthusiasm and, you know, bury yourself in the details of the smallest thing, whether it's candles or whether it's, you know, ca- camera setups, but you're absolutely right. I mean, that, that's what I love the most. And that's what I, I miss the most. You just miss, you miss the camaraderie, you miss the people because yeah. you're not, you're not just doing something alone. You're, you're building something together and it becomes less about then in my experience, anyway, less about the result and more about the incredible collaborative process that, that helps kept, it helped keep me more present and more so than anything else I'd ever done in my life. By the way, I know this is my interview, but what what do you got coming up next? Are you going to continue to do what you did? I, I hope so. Yeah, the goal is and I, this is where you've been. I'm sure you know you, you you get through the door and you get to work with all those great people, and then and then you got to start back up at the bottom of the hill and start pushing the boulder again. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I and and I'm and I'll be happy to to let you know more specifics once once we're not talking about your movie. Um, but thank you for asking. Yeah, man. Uh, one of the things that also struck me in watching this movie, you know, after having read you for so many years, your characters, and we get a little taste of it here, but not, not a ton, but your characters, when you're in their heads in the books, they generally love escapist things, you know, they, whether it's high flying athletes. And that's what I was thinking of that we saw a taste of in the, um, in the confidential informant story or the, the cars that you also love so much or Westerns or just movies in general, the characters who are living, you know, much more day-to-day existences love those things. But when you're writing the stories, their lives are not those things, right? Their lives are not over the top cinematic uh, necessarily. They're hard scrabble. They're more lived in. And that's evidence in the TV that you've made and, and in this. I, I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit because you are absolutely a fan of more escapist genres, but there is a, there is a day-to-day realism that runs through everything and runs through this film that is consistent and, and, and really admirable and noteworthy. Well... I guess if I like all kinds of, I like watching all kinds of things. And, um, but when it comes to my own work, I really prefer the sort of the documentary style realism of what you see that I've done. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, on this one, I was working with, uh, the DP was Francisco Bogarelli. And, you know, we talked about it just being, I wanted to feel that, we were eavesdropping on all these people's lives and that you don't bring attention to the camera, you know, or shooting up at the sky when you, what you want to do is let the camera find the story. And it's always about, it's always about people, you know, and he did a wonderful job, which this is a micro budget project. It was really, really low budget. Mm -hmm. Um, The only one that looks like a movie movie really, I think is mine because I was going for that film noir sort of, you know, kind of widescreen look, a little bit more beautiful. 
but it's not my favorite of all the movies that we that we did in this because I think because it is the most noir. I felt like I have to give people something that they're a little familiar with when you call it noir. Yep. But the other stories to me are actually more noir because they're absent the artifice of the Spider Woman and all that kind of thing. That uh, those signposts. Um, it's just to me noir is. Uh, what's more noir than a kid that's born in a neighborhood through no fault of his own is trapped in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And which is what string music is about. That guy's just a, a high school kid who just wants to play basketball and talk to girls and stuff like that. But because of where he lives, um, he's in danger. And, and he's, and there's that claustrophobia there that, um, you know, somebody, once said that uh, the definition of noir is nothing is going to be all right ever. <laughs> well, it's also, I think, a really smart updating of the the idea and the concept because if you think of like a classic noir hero like like Philip Marlowe, what distinguished him was his ability to cross between layers of society to go to the bottom and to go to the high, and he's sort of our tour guide through those worlds. But mm-hmm. because he was a white man himself in those at that time, he could pass in all of those worlds, and he could go to the lowest bottom, the lowest rung of society at the time, and then he could climb back up again to a, a safer middle place. Right. And I think what's kind of powerful about the stories that you've chosen is, as you said, the characters don't have the luxury of, of affectation or of, of um, mobility. And that makes it uh, a lot more powerful. Yeah. And it's especially, I think, obvious in the last one, The Confidential Informant. Yes. Which uh, is all about the the ine- inevitability of fate. And w- But couched in a, st- in a universal story about that everybody feels, which is you want to be loved by your father, you know, mm-hmm. or your mother. You know what I mean? That's what that, that's what that story is about. It's the, it's the guy searching for that... Um, for that love and, and the blessing of the, of the dad, which he never, he never gets until he sees him in the afterlife. I thought, um, since we're talking about that, that story, I, I do want to shout out Thaddeus Smart who's the actor in that and, and who I recognize from the role of black Frankie on the deuce. And is someone who just drew my eye every time he was on the screen on that show. And he's outstanding in this. He's a real, he's a real talent. Thaddeus street. Yeah. He, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Did I say Thaddeus young? Cause I think gave the former 76 or small forward. <laughs> Um, I, I, I can fix that. That's a good story. I mean, we Pat Moran was our casting director, and she did The Wire, and she did all of John Waters' movies. And she's really good. So when, I, when we were casting that, she found him. He had been doing community theater and stuff in Baltimore. And then because of the strength of what he did in The Confidential Informant, I cast him in The Deuce. And I just love the guy. He's a really good actor. He's a good human being. And he's on his way now. So that's a good yeah. story from this. He's one to watch. Um, well, since we're talking about writing and, and style and genre, one thing that I was thinking about was just your, the evolution of your own writing. And, you know, your writing was never overly flowery. No one would ever say that. But I think that as you've matured, the writing has become almost more taut, more sparse. The last novel you published in 2018, The Man Who Came Up Town, which is just excellent book. Um, Thank you. It's just, just to read it, it's like it's kind of a masterclass in character and plot. There's nothing wasted there. There's no there's no fat on the bone. Um, and I was wondering, do you think that evolution? Well, I guess the first part was if you even you know feel that's a valid observation. But I wonder if you think that is something to do with your TV work. You know, where there's there's certainly even less room for 
for for fat in a in a TV story that's driven by plot, or is it more a reflection of where you've ended up in 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 life and in in what interests you? I guess both. I mean, the the, the television writing has disciplined me mm. in in the way that you're talking about to not waste any space in the script on things that are never going to be on screen, and so there's that. And also, I think um, my sort of love for a certain type of writing, which I call populist uh, fiction or, um, you know, Steinbeck, John Fonte, A.I. Bezzarides, they're all, uh, coincidentally, they're, it's all Californians, but mm-hmm. uh, they just, I love that period. Uh, Horace McCoy, a lot of newspaper men that became writers and which, you know, that there's a definite transition there from, writing for newspapers to fiction, right? You know, and it's very spare. The noirists like David Goodis, you know, which is my favorite noir writer. It's totally down, down, like you say, down to the bone. And even somebody like in The Man Who Came Uptown, I talk about Valdez's coming by Elmore Leonard, which to me is a perfect novel. It's very short, no wasted words at all, and beautifully done. Just perfect. I I think... um... I don't know if uh, we've discussed this on this podcast in a previous appearance or if Chris and I have done it when um, when we've talked about your writing, but I often think also about where you, where you are in your life and and the characters you're writing about because you, you you would have no reason to remember this, but the first time that we met was when when Chris and I got uh, came to see you read Drama City. I think it must have been 2004 in mm-hmm. New York City in Barnes and Noble, and and um, I think we've talked about on this podcast how generous you were in signing the book that we brought to you. But the thing I don't know if we've talked about before is that Chris and I, it was March Madness when you were in town and, and Chris and I were very excited to basically invite Nick Stefanos out with us to watch <laughs> March Madness, you know, to go to some bar and stay there until the last basket went in or didn't. And you so politely said, I, I think I'm going to go back to my hotel room and maybe have a, a bottle of beer and go to bed. And, <laughs> and now that I am officially, I'd like to go back to my room and have a bottle of beer and go to bed years old. I really appreciate that. I really appreciate that distinction. Yeah. Well, I should have gone out with you guys, but I, I probably did go home and just watch the game in my room. Um, I like to stay focused when March Madness comes around. That, that's the other part of it, right? <laughs> it's more about how much would we be watching the game and how much would we have been just yelling questions about Karis and Clay in your ear. A question that I that came up in, in my mind when I was watching it, and, and obviously it takes on an even you know a darker relevance today. We're speaking on on Monday. I was thinking a lot about the ways that you've explored the concept of policing in your work um, from your earliest books to, to, to today. Mm-hmm. Uh, one constant has been that there is an example set sometimes in your books of, of good policing. Um, it's an example that is you know, rarely followed by, by other cops in books, but there are cops who behave the way, I'm going to call them the nickname in the, in the, in the um, section of the film, Sergeant Dad behaves in string. Is it string music? Is that the the the, the name of the piece? Yeah. You know, has a he has a relationship to the community and to the neighborhood that he's policing. He knows people's names. He knows their history. Uh, he's even right. friendly with people. And right. he, as he drives and we're with him, it is not a predatory vision of the place. It's just he likes to know where people are. Um, the problems with policing in this country obviously aren't new to you. Um, but I wonder about how your own thinking of how you convey policing in your fiction has been affected if it has been by the, this tumultuous year. Well, um, my, 
convictions have always remained constant. Um, you bring up that guy, that character, and, and that to me is the idealization of what a police officer should be. Mm-hmm. And it's what many of them were before the drug war came and, and changed everything. Cops used to work a beat or get out of their car and they'd get to know the people in the neighborhood. And then when there was a murder, uh, let's say, the people in the neighborhood would talk to the police. But what happened was that um, as the years went on and this and this phony drug war continued, people were getting locked up left and right for things like marijuana possession, parole violation. And then the people in the neighborhood actually had people in their family or friends who were all doing time and they could no longer in good conscience talk to the police because the police had become the enemy, which is not how it should be. Um, we, uh, we're, we're doing it. My next project is for, I haven't talked about it. So this is like exclusive, I guess, but it's for HBO. It's a, um, it's about the gun trace task force in Baltimore, which was a squad of corrupt uh, policemen who got sought to federal prison. And, um, and it was, it went on for years. They were robbing drug dealers and, you know, false overtime and planning evidence, all, all kinds of stuff. But it's really about the, the failure of a, of a police force to connect with its citizenry. Hmm. And we're working on that now. And, and hopefully we're going to, um, uh, we're going to shoot it early next year. It's a uh, limited series. And when I say we, I was approached to do it. And I said, well, if I, I will do this if I can bring in the guys from The Wire and we can do a, uh, for Carmen, you know, we'll do a last hurrah. So we've got, um, it's David Simon and I and Ed Burns and Bill Zorzi, all Wire veterans. And we got a, a writer, D. Watkins from Baltimore. And it's based on this, uh, the source material is a Baltimore Sun reporter, Justin Fenton, has a book coming out called we own this city, which is all about the, uh, this gun trace task force. That is extremely exciting to hear. And you're able to, to drag Simon away from Twitter long enough to contribute. <laughs> it, it's hard, but yeah. Does yeah. it, does it, does it make him calmer in the room since he's, since he's ex- expending all of that rage and bile towards Piers Morgan and internet trolls? I mean, eventually you got to go to work. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> Shut off the Wi-Fi. Time to get to yeah. work. Um, that's extremely exciting. And, you know, as with a lot of these projects we're hearing about it, it feels, you know, almost prescient like this. But but it, it, it sounds like this is something that you that you were drawn to even before what police what policing ought to mean became a national conversation. Yeah, it, it was. I mean, we've been working on this for a while. The, 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 the pandemic interrupted us, obviously, but but, you know, we were we were talking about this for a couple of years. And then after the um, Freddie Gray uprising yeah. in Baltimore, it's all going to tie in. I, I don't you know, I don't agree with everything that the that people are protesting about. For example, I don't think that I think that defund the police is, is a is a dumb idea, in my opinion. They should be talking about demilitarizing the police and reforming the police. But it takes money to 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 actually do police reform, and um, nobody wants the streets less safe. Uh, I just think that we can we can come to some sort of place where the police and the citizens are working together again, mm-hmm. instead of in opposition to each other, and that 
everybody gets a fair shake, no matter your your economic condition or your or your race. You know, just everybody should be treated the same way by the police, and um, and hopefully we'll get somewhere. Look, this thing that happened uh, uh, just this week yeah. or yesterday in Wisconsin, it triggered immediate protests up there and around the country. People aren't going to be complacent anymore about this stuff. They're just not. And and that's one of the good things that has come out of all this. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I and I and I hope you're right about that. Um, just to wrap up. So as you know, I'm I am attempting to follow in your footsteps, writing TV uh, for a living, and and still watching a lot of TV for the podcast. But uh, during this pandemic, especially, the thing that has really sustained me more than anything else has been reading and reading widely and deeply and. Uh, just devouring as many books as I can, or you know, writers' whole oeuvres or whatever in my in my spare time. Um, I don't Thank know if, if if Jenny mentioned this to you in our emails, but but Chris and I just had the most fun we've had all year doing a four part deep dive on Lonesome Dove, um, and wow. it was just it was just the most fun we've had podcasting and most fun reading experience. And I, I guess I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. It sounds like it's been similar to you, um, a similar experience for you. You know, there's just something that still, despite all the options I have at my disposal, there's something about the total escape that's possible only in a book that still gets me, you know, and I, and I know that you've done work, um, volunteering in prisons and, and the man who came uptown was one of the main characters as a prison librarian. You've obviously been a great booster of, of authors and books through your whole career. I, I guess I just curious your perspective on the role reading can and should play in the lives of young people today and, or, or even the not so young, like, like yours truly. Well, I think, um, you know, I often talk about this with, with reading in jail and prisons is that if a guy, a man or a woman takes a book into his cell at night, he can get out of that cell by opening that book and going into that world. So right now we're all uh, locked up a little bit and it's never been more edit, uh, evident how important books are to just get away, man. You know, like it takes you out of this pandemic too. If you just quietly read and, and I've been reading, um, I've been reading some books that I felt like I didn't have the time to read before, mm-hmm. you know, um, right now I'm reading um, from here to eternity. It's a thousand pages long. And I couldn't be more happy to get into that thing every day. I recently read A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, which I'd heard a lot about over the years, but it was kind of daunting to read a 700-page novel, but I did it. And um, I've been enjoying the books of Rachel Kushner this year. I think she's unbelievable. She's like the one, as far as I'm concerned, to have the current writers. Um, Yeah, I I, I agree. The Flamethrowers is just an out-of-body experience, start to finish. It's great. It's great. So... It's been, you know, there's been good things that have come out of this. I mean, I, I've had time again to, to read a lot of books where I don't think I would have, for the rest of my life, I wouldn't have had this opportunity to, to read so many books in one year. And, and it's been great. The same thing happened to me where just early on, you know, I had a bookshelf behind me where I was doing the, you know, the first round of Zoom calls me for even sort of learn about it. And there were books on there that I've been carrying around with me since college. And I just took down... I took down Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain and mm-hmm. I figured, oh, you know, 900 pages about sickness and being trapped in a place. That seems about right. And it was as much about reading it as it was the sort of 
lessons it was teaching me about being patient that maybe if I only read, you know, a certain number of pages a night or whatever, you, you keep chipping and you get away and you get there. And, and so it was, it was operating on a number of levels. Um, it definitely didn't change my mind about, uh, it didn't make me want to live on the Alps for seven years, but it did, it did, it did take me out of the moment in a way that I appreciated. Yeah. And you went to the Alps. I mean, that's what the book, that's what a book that's does. Right. Um, and then, and then Lonesome Dove, which was just like, and now I've, now I've just not, I, I think I've read six McMurtry's this summer. Um, I can't stop. Lonesome but, Dove is a classic. It's an American classic, you know? It, yeah. If I wanted to, I wanted to get your thoughts on it just because we, we've just finished this conversation and it just hits a sweet spot that I can't, I can't recover from of just, it is a deeply literary and intellectual book, but it's also the most purely pleasurable page turning experience I can remember. Yeah. I think he, he, uh, I don't know Larry McMurtry, even though he had a bookstore in DC for a while. Mm -hmm. And, um, but I, I got the impression as a writer, I mean, I, these, these sort of things kind of resonate. I got the impression that, that this was a, the book that he wanted to write his whole life and B, he put everything into it. And he knew, you know, when he was writing it, that this was the one and, and it's, and it is, and all the other book, I've read a lot of his books. They're, they're very good books, but, this one stands out as as it was worth a life, you know, is worth a life, a writer's life, just to have this one book, and it's incredible, man. Do you, do you feel that as a, in your experience writing books? Do you you know you when you when you read interviews with basketball players and and they're like, no, I knew, I knew I was on, I wasn't going to miss for the rest of the game. Do you ever mm -hmm. get in that zone? Do do you, do you, do writers talk about when the doors are closed? Do they say like, well, the book that everyone loves? Yeah, I was feeling that one. Yeah, I think so. Um, and I, and there's times when I, it's, it's a challenge, you know, like, and I know it's a challenge. Like when I wrote hard revolution, I wanted to write about the 68 riots my whole life because it was such a big deal when I was, when I was a kid. And, but I waited until it was my 12th book to tackle it because I didn't think I was good enough until then. And, and then I put everything I had into it. I knew that, I knew that there was like a certain responsibility to it. Um, and I bet that's the way McMurtry felt about Lo Lonesome Dove. If we're keeping that image of, you know, the video game player from like NBA Jam in the 90s when the when Shaquille O'Neal was, the, the video game character was literally on fire because he's so, he's so hot. It, what is there a book where you felt that way when you were writing it, just in your own mind, in your own experience writing the books? Uh, I remember when I wrote uh, King Sucker Man, it was, it was like, all I had to do was sit down and the book was coming out of me. Yeah. And it's a period book, but I never even did any research for it really because it was, I was 19 years old when that book was set. And I remember everything. It just came so easily. But it reads that way too. And that also probably, it, it, as you're saying that, it, it reminds me of, of McMurtry writing Lonesome Dove. He didn't do research because he just remembered his grandparents and uncles talking about the way things used to be. And then only later did someone point out that he had forgotten that trains existed. <laughs> and he admits it now. He just forgot about trains because he wasn't doing any research. And so, you haven't said anything, but the, but the, the TV series is monumental too. Yeah, we, we did. When we did our, our podcast, we did both in tandem. So we did four parts talking about the book in the sections that the TV show broke it into. Mm -hmm. That kind of invented a lot of where TV ended up too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, George, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking this time. Um, yeah, and, it's always a pleasure, man. And so now we have something new to look forward to. 
people have a reading list to look to, but in the short term, DC Noir, you can you can rent it, you can buy it, and can't recommend it more highly. Um, George yeah, if you just Google DC Noir the movie, you'll find out how to how to see it. If you don't Google it uh, as the movie, if you just Google DC Noir, they might also see the book, which is still in print, and they could get that too. Yeah, I win either way. <laughs> either way, as long as they're consuming DC Noir, we're good. <laughs> All right, my best to your family and everyone, George. Thank you. Thanks, man. Talk to you later. Bye.